shout the oven. It's Cinema Bums. I'm Wade. And I'm just your friendly neighborhood, Emmett. Cinema Bums is a podcast where we watch through every single movie in popular film franchises, one each week to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today, we are continuing our miniseries, Webhead Summer. Covering every Spider-Man film, we will fully spoil today's film, Spider-Man 2002, but we will not spoil any future entries in the series. Emmett, how are you doing? I'm doing quite well. I love this weird, gross movie. (laughs) Let's talk about it. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing good. This is... (laughs) A deeply strange movie. I was delighted by how strange this movie was. After having not seen it in like probably 10 years at the least, I was delighted with how weird it was. I had only ever seen this movie once as a kid. I remembered how Green Goblin dies because it scared me. Mm -hmm. And I remember the scene where Peter catches everything in the lunch tray because I thought it was cool. Those were the only memories that I retained from probably being like eight years old and seeing this on DVD. Had you seen this more recently? More recently than that, but not a lot. Maybe when I was like 11 or 12. Like you, the only part that I remembered from all of this, I remember the part where he lets the guy die, where he, well, first where he lets the guy go and then he lets the guy die. Mm-hmm. Only other thing I'd remembered from it was when the Green Goblin died. Like you, everything else was like a whole new experience to me. I was like, this is wild. I can't believe any of this is in there. The part about the wrestling. Also, we need to talk about Spider-Man's homophobia. Like, let's not let that <laughs> yes. stand. Our friendly neighborhood <laughs> Spider-Man. Come on. Not, not so friendly, friendly to everybody. Come on. <laughs> what the hell? spider-man's problematic past i've also got to say you mentioned when when he lets the robber pass him i've got to take a little bit of issue with this because people are saying that it's his fault that he lets the guy get away peter parker at least to the knowledge of everyone else is just like a normal teenager in a hallway a robber is running at him holding a gun at full speed it is not peter's responsibility to like what tackle this guy who's brandishing a weapon at him yeah no there is no way that the police would be yelling stop him stop him also it's always been unclear to me in in this movie and i think this movie sam raimi does the best with what he's got with this but we can get into that Mm -hmm. uncle ben and how how he needed to get shot in all of that Because we don't actually see it happen. Yeah. I mean, like, what did Uncle Ben do? Like, try and stand in the way, try and be the man, be the hero, and, like, do it, and then that's why he got shot? Or did this guy just, like, walk out of there after having robbed the place without shooting anyone and decide to plug some old dude in the street? It does not make sense. Something about that doesn't add up to me. Yeah. Quite properly, and never has. And he's just, like, dying out there in the street. I have seen other versions of this Uh where I more buy like whatever sin it is that Peter commits to let the guy get away with it. Sure. In this situation, I don't hold it against Peter at all. If a man was running towards me (laughs) with a gun, I would not do anything to try and stop him in (laughs) any situation. Yeah. Yeah, Just duck and cover. Get the hell out of Dodge, man. 
Okay, today we are talking about the big one, the big bad boy, the start of a new generation. Talking about Toby M.F. McGuire. <laughs> oh, God. This dude. <laughs> this dweeb. Why has he cursed our existence? <laughs> look, well, look, let's get into it. I think he's so bad in this movie. <laughs> And I don't think it's entirely his fault, but I really think, like, my main criticism of this movie is that I don't like him. Like, I don't understand what he cares about and what his relationships are and why I should root for him as a character. You know that thing that we always talk about with Mark Hamill? Tobey Maguire does not have it. That thing... <laughs> Where, like, what he's looking at, you believe it's there? No, not happening with old Tobe. I'm just like, what? I mean, like, what is the guy's deal? I have no idea. He's so creepy and weird. Why is a generation entranced by him? He is, like, not emo enough for it to be a thing. He is not hot enough for it to be cute. He is not nerdy enough for it to be okay. It is just bad all around. And that is, I blame a lot of that on the writing, but a lot of it is his strange ass delivery. Yeah, he is so creepy. I mean, from the very beginning when he's like, oh, let me take some pictures of you. (laughs) Like, so creepy. And then when he's not being Peter, when he's being Spider-Man, Like, the lines are pretty good Spider-Man quips, but they sound so fake coming out of his mouth. Like, he could not sound less convincing giving, like, a throwaway burn to a bad guy if he tried. So I watched this on a cute FaceTime date with Arabella and watched this movie while she also Mm -hmm. watched it. And she was like, why is this movie so gross, first off? (laughs) But then, yeah, it's like, why is he such a i don't know he's a a weird dude it's bad it's bad casting it's a bad performance his performance is badly directed with how the rest of the world is directed and really principally like poorly written dialogue yeah i think all of those are converging to leave sort of this gaping hole in the center of an otherwise sometimes absolutely astounding, incredible movie. It really is. And everyone else in this movie is putting in top dollar work. Like every other performance in this is some of the best you see, like you see out of them, at least in that era of, of those actors. It's like so good. Mm -hmm. And like you said, the directing is spot on and like gets it. And the visuals in this, despite sometimes being hindered by old, like 2002 style CGI, but like the visual effects and the practical visuals in this are incredible. And like the way the camera is used in this amazing. I mean, a lot to love from Sam Raimi's work on this for sure. Yeah. And I agree that like so many supporting characters in this are giving like these unbelievably good performances. But I also think like the movie is doing so much that you kind of forget about all the other threads when they're off screen. Like Mm -hmm. Defoe or Kirsten Dunst or like someone will pop up and then be gone for like 25 minutes and then pop back up. And you're like, oh, right. That's going on, too. Yeah. 
Well, to give a little bit of uh, the stats here, uh, I would say go back and listen to our X-Men episode if you want a full history of the superhero movie. Mm, But mm -hmm. basically, Batman and Robin sort of killed what they were up until that point, something primarily for kids, something Mm -hmm. very involved with selling toys. Uh, And then you've got Blade, which comes back as like a totally just for adults horror thing. And really in 2000, you've got X-Men, which is being like, okay, here's a movie with attitude for teenagers and little kids will probably kind of like it too. And adults will probably kind of like it too. But like, here's a movie where we've taken the comic book and tried to take it seriously and dress everyone in sexy black leather. Mm hmm. And it is very much out of the big success of that that this movie is coming out. Spider-Man released May 3rd, 2002 by Columbia Pictures. There was a big rights battle. This movie was basically like like the original X-Men in development hell forever, but ended up the rights reverting to Columbia Pictures, who produced the 1977 movie we talked about last week as well. This was directed by... Sam Raimi, a really incredible genre director, got his start in sort of the Michigan DIY scene. Him and the Cone brothers came up together. No way. Collaborated on a lot of stuff early on. That's so cool. I read that in the early days, he lived in a house with the Cohen brothers, Francis McDormand, and Holly Hunter. <laughs> We're all living in a house and oh my trying God. to make money. <laughs> That's incredible. So he's this like very visually expressive director. He starts making horror movies, the Evil Dead series, all throughout the 80s. He also makes Dark Man. So he had done a superhero movie before this. Mm-hmm. But more directly before this in the 90s, he was sort of on a string of like more serious movies. I don't know if that's just the way things were leaning or if he felt like he had something to prove. But like before this, he did The Quick and the Dead, A Simple Plan, For the Love of the Game, The Gift. Like not stuff that is very much has like the horror sensibilities or the really crazy camera movements he's Uh known for. This series is really him taking all that stuff and coalescing it in a big budget movie again. And this did have a big budget, $140 million. But it ended up making eight hundred and twenty one million gigantic success. Third highest grossing film of two thousand two. Didn't it break the opening weekend record? Yes, it was the first movie to ever make a hundred million dollars in one weekend. That's so cool. So how do you feel about Sam Raimi? I mean, have you seen much other of his stuff? Well, my main exposure, I think, is exclusively through the three Evil Dead original movies which is Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, and Army of Darkness, which I cannot recommend highly enough. I played a drinking game with good friend of mine and friend of the mm. pod, Beth Fletcher, last Halloween, where we watched through all three of those movies. And when I say by the end of that, we were crawling. You can't walk straight after having seen those movies <laughs> anyway, but certainly not if you're playing the drinking game version of it. I highly recommend as a... <laughs> as a Halloween trick or treat, you know, evil dead. The original was shot for again, $0 in that little shack. 
And it's crazy that you say that about the Coen brothers, because the Coen brothers use that shack, you know, brother, where art thou? It's the shack that they explode with the water. And I believe that that was a practical effect that they really destroyed. Oh, wow. That shed that they use for that he used for the first two Evil Dead movies. He is like coming from the most creative kind of directing, which is horror on a zero budget, making gruesome and wackadoodle special effects and like making it fun and zany and scary all at the same time. Um, consistently through those three movies, I would imagine that Darkman has mm-hmm. a similar sensibility from its content to really take that. I mean, you look at somebody like that. Mm-hmm. I think of another person to have come up through weird, gross out, crazy zero budget horror to make one of the greatest drama epics of all time. We're talking about Peter Jackson. That is the kind of <laughs> oh, okay, okay. That that's that's what it's a similar it's a similar vibe right there. And I think you can track that with also with Taika too in a similar way. I mean, horror being not so much his bag, but that kind of really low budget mm-hmm. stuff and then give him a huge project and he's going to deliver because he has like been so creative with that. He's not doing mumblecore with zero budget. He's doing wildly inventive camera movements and uh, characters and with all of that. So I think it all comes through in this movie with like those weird flashes of the spider and the skull and stuff like that. And like, all of the flashback stuff and the the way that mm. this movie is so deeply weird, like has Spider-Man's origin be through wrestling. Mm-hmm. It just like brings in everything. <laughs> and it's even, it's even Bruce Campbell um, who plays Ash and all the evil dead movies playing the professional wrestling announcer guy. So, mm-hmm. you know, it all ties back around. What do you think of Sam Raimi as a director after having looked at this? Well, I guess I knew him primarily through these films, first of all. In preparation for this, I went and watched Evil Dead 2, which Ah. I've got to say is just like astounding, like one of the best movies I've ever seen. This is obviously like reductive, my reductive modern take, because all these things have been later inspired by it. But Evil Dead 2, to me, was kind of like if Pixar made a horror movie. Like, it's just like an endlessly creative, Mm -hmm. goofy, wacky, weird, won't stop (laughs) coming, uh, like, monster movie. And so I definitely, like, then getting to watch this, it was so cool to see him, like, bring those sensibilities to, like, a big blockbuster. I think in a bunch of sequences in this movie, you can, like, really tell they got a horror director and that plays off so well i mean i don't think i can say enough about like the directing in this movie the stuff that sam raimi does of looking at a scene and then just being like okay what is like the craziest way we can stage this (laughs) and in a way that like feels visceral and exciting and propulsive not so much in a michael bay sort of way where it's like just sort of like dizzying or Mm -hmm. you feel like he's just like showing off or even sort of JJ Abrams is kind of close to that too, where like things constantly need to be moving. This is more like making the camera a character and like having that character interact in surprising ways constantly. And something that I think about to that point, 
you know how the whole time we were doing the X-Men series, it was in search of the relatable superhero movie. The superhero movie whose stakes you could feel. And I think this is that movie. I think this is the movie that I was talking about that whole time that like feels so relatable. And the, even at the end, the choice that he's given is not between the city and the woman he loves. It's between a, a car full of children and the woman he loves. So even then, it's like stakes that one can understand. You can understand 10 or 20 people dying in a car accident. You can understand one person dying. That Those are stakes that we can like feel. And he's completely there. And it's like in the last scene with Willem Dafoe, he's like, he spells it out. It's a little heavy handed in the script, but he says, I'm like a father to you, Peter. All of it is is mm. very real and like the emotional stakes of it feel 100 percent close to the bone all the time throughout the whole movie. I just like assumed watching this movie that it was going to end with Green Goblin on top of the Empire State Building with yeah. the remote to a machine that turns everyone crazy uh-huh. and Peter has to go up and stop it. Yeah, But it doesn't. It's like much more intimate. The final fight between Peter and Green Goblin that's like in some sort of like graveyard spooky forest setting has got to be one of the best fights I've seen in any superhero movie. So good. Like it is just so tight and bloody and distressing. And I went back and like rewatched it this morning after having watched the movie last night to get a feel for it again. Like it feels so real and so close and like that is really to this movie's credit that even though you see the template for so many other superhero movies here like Mm -hmm. it is still wisely making personal choices in a way that a lot of others aren't going to Mm -hmm. despite toby Maguire, in many ways every relationship in this movie to peter feels grounded and i think that's a testament to the side characters well it's like a checkoff play Like, every relationship is tied back to him in such an ingrained way. The bad guy is his best friend's dad. His best friend is dating the girl he loves. The girl he loves is his next-door neighbor. Like, it is all so smartly weaved together, even though it is, in some ways, really fundamentally changing what is actually the standard Spider-Man origin Hmm. story. It is doing so in a way that establishes this movie universe very seamlessly like a web almost like a web of connections (laughs) with him at the center almost the other big creative force here is one we've talked about recently many times on this podcast david kep writer of jurassic park and the lost world colon jurassic park also wrote the original mission impossible wrote this screenplay also wrote kimmy which we discussed at length on some other episode yeah I feel like this is one of the least good scripts of his that we have talked about. Yeah, I feel pretty comfortable (laughs) digging into this script a little bit because of how much we've been on the record of liking Kep's work. This, to me, is kind of the opposite of his Lost World script, where in that he has all these great one-liners and these cool ideas for scenes, but like the structure and the story of that movie Mm -hmm. totally falls apart. Yeah. And that I don't hold against him so much because he had all these sort of mandates and stuff. But yeah. this movie is kind of the opposite to me where he's got a great structure. 
Yes. And he's got great characters uh-huh. and everything weaved together. But like the minute to minute dialogue in this thing is not good. I mean, oftentimes, especially in the romantic scenes, especially a lot of the stuff Peter has feels mm-hmm. like a parody of yes. a coming of age movie. Yes. Know? Yeah. What to do with that? Oh, and we should say music by Danny Elfman also did the score for the Batman 89. Uh, If you haven't heard that score, but you've heard the Spider-Man score, then you've heard that score. Well, I was going to say, he also did the music for um, Nightmare Before Christmas. Emmett, Taken on the Whole, Mm -hmm. Spider-Man 2002. Are you giving it a flop or a bop? Bop, for sure. For sure. It's too much fun not to... I think it is a crisply paced origin story where they still manage to give the origin story like half of the movie's length and then the first adventure, the other half of the movie's length. But they do it in a way where you don't really notice that it's happening that way. Like it doesn't feel like two parts of the movie because they've built in the Osborne stuff so early on. So I think it's really cleverly structured in that way. Mm. So that none of that feels like, you know, how sometimes you'll have a second half of a movie come along. You're like, whoa, we're in a whole different world or a whole at least a whole different conflict and story. This feels like still on the same trajectory the whole time, which I think is well to its credit while being encased in two halves, which I would call the origin story and the first adventure. It's good. And I love Willem Dafoe in this. I love Willem Dafoe and I love James Franco in this. And I think their performances Mm. are what make me like really like this movie. Take it from just like a pretty good, well-directed superhero movie to like a truly rewatchable thing that I'd be interested in. Yeah. Franco and Dafoe are such good casting as father and son because they have this like similar deranged look uh-huh. and they're just like so striking visually. I mean, I think like look at like a still frame of any scene they're in together in this movie and like you get what the movie is going for mm-hmm. so much more than you do maybe even like watching the scene like even the last image of them like hugging is so powerful like good casting and really elevating this thing i feel like yeah wait flop or bop i don't know i feel really conflicted about this like more conflicted than maybe any movie we've done (laughs) so i don't know because some stuff i think like is incredible a lot of the directing a lot of the side performances and then some stuff i think like just fundamentally doesn't work like i don't think the peter parker of this movie works and that sort of like (laughs) makes things hard and i also think that i may be like harder on this movie because of how great some of the other stuff is Mm -hmm. that it's like so easy to see that this movie could be like an all-time five-star undisputed masterpiece with you know some better dialogue and maybe a stronger casting, clearer direction. What if you'd had the guy playing Iceman in X-Men playing Spider-Man in this movie instead? It's the same time. It's about the same age. I think he would do a really good job. Because I think he has so little in those movies and he does so much and is so good in them. And like make some pretty cringy dialogue less cringy. Whereas Tobey Maguire only increases it. Yeah, I feel like the Spider-Man thing is that he's like, a good 
funny dude who is like kind of dorky so people don't really pay attention to him and that's like the thing that makes when he's spider-man work because he has all these like quips that is like the thing the character is known for that he is like cracking these jokes but those have to feel like they're coming out of peter too and in this movie it feels like the gulf between them is gigantic yeah and you're just not really sure like what his deal is yeah when harry is jealous of spider-man you're like really and then you get to like one of the scenes with kirsten dunce who i think is amazing in this or willem dafoe and it just like so livens up the movie and you're like okay more of this like all of the side characters are probably in this movie for like 13 minutes of total runtime because it is juggling so much. Yeah. I do think if they made this movie today, it would be at least two movies, if not three. Uh, movies. Yeah. 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 I don't know. On the other hand, is it really doing less overall than the most recent Spider-Man movie is? I mean, that movie has a lot going on too. Yeah. Well, it's also sometimes unclear how much time has passed in this film. Like, they graduate, and then how mm-hmm. long passes? How long are they in the city doing their thing? Like, how long is it until he runs into MJ again? Like, all of that is kind of like, yeah, and later. Mm-hmm. It was later. Uh, it doesn't help that Tobey Maguire is 26 and looks like he's 32 as he plays from an 18-year-old to a question mark year old right. in this movie but yeah it feels sort of like it spans this great gulf of time and in like the last 20 minutes aunt may has a line where she says you're doing so much peter you're you're freelancing at the bugle you're doing this other stuff and you're going to college and i was like he's going to college yeah because we have not seen or heard anything about yeah, that nothing about the college though. and that's just something else He's just going to college in the city, and that's another thing he's doing on the daily? Damn. He is busier than hell. I mean, speaking of the daily and side performances, also, J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson. Oh, my God. Someone else who lights up this movie for brief patches. Yeah, he is so good, so incredibly good in this. And when he's like, I don't trust anybody but my barber. That is an incredible joke. That's one <laughs> David Kep joke that we could David keep right now. Like that is that's amazing. <laughs> Wade, what behind the scenes drama do you have for this movie? We do want to mention that Kep is the only one credited, but this movie was sort of based on an earlier draft from a James Cameron script, which was rewritten into Kep's main script. Scott Rosenberg does sort of the final pass. And then the guy they have who's actually on set of the film, mm-hmm. David Kep doesn't normally go on set and be the on set writer for his movies. Oh, gotcha. So um, the on set, like puncher upper was this guy named Alvin Sargent. Uh, and he's the guy who goes on to write the next two movies. So the, that's sort of his connection here. And I guess we'll see his work the next two weeks. Just another thing that I would like to bring up about this movie is the grossness of this movie. And this is a thing which I think carries over from the horror thing, but it's not directly tied in exactly to like, you know, it feeling like a horror movie. Although I do think at times that it does and you feel the horror director, but it is more that like body horror of turning into a spider person. Like when the little hairs come out of his thumb, that is, ugh. 
I did remember that part from having originally watched it. And let me tell you, I did not like seeing it again. It was just as awful as I'd ever remembered it being like the gross quality of like the webs that he's shooting out of himself. The decision to make it organic webs Mm -hmm. instead Mm of ones that he builds is so weird. And so like straight up disgusting. (laughs) Truly. And that whole scene where he's like, "Ah, is this funny with another actor? It would be funny. Toby McGuire. It's just kind of sad. I thought some of that scene was kind of funny. I think the stuff towards the beginning is where Toby is strongest. And as the movie keeps going, it sort of loses the thread on him a little bit. Mm. I mean, can you explain to me like the final moments of the movie? Like why exactly he makes this decision with MJ to like reject her and say, I can own all I have to offer is a friend. Not at all. Not even a little bit. It is it completely out of the blue and seems totally unconnected. It's like a Batman ending to a John Hughes movie. And I'm like, where where did this come from? Why? (laughs) It reminded me so much of the end (laughs) of the most recent Batman movie. No spoilers. Like it reminded me a lot of that in a graveyard saying goodbye, you know, like leaving Mm. parting ways. But there is no point in this movie where it's really made clear. I mean, and I think this is something that eventually he just learns to accept. But it's like, I guess the idea is that MJ was in peril because she was Spider-Man's girlfriend. But she was already close to Osborne. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not really, it's certainly not Peter's fault. But also you said it like she was Spider-Man's girlfriend not peter parker's so peter parker to be like no i can't do this they're in this weird like clark superman lois love triangle but she has gotten all this attention for her connection with spider-man not peter and then when she opens up to peter like why doesn't he reciprocate i think this movie is a little stuck on like the tragedy of spider-man which definitely is a thing but in some situations feels a little overblown here i feel like you don't have to keep her around if you don't want to. You can just have a happy ending on the movie, you know, and like use her later for some future tragedy. If that's what you if like he has to be some tragic hero. I don't think it would have killed everybody if this movie ended with them together. Yeah. And to the tragic hero of it all, I feel like it is a weird move to start with MJ because in the comics, it always is like he dates Gwen Stacy in high school, who is like the sweet, smart, innocent girlfriend. She gets killed by the green goblin. And then he dates MJ like in college. And as an adult, they get married. And she is like sassy, sexy, like in charge sort of girlfriend. Oh, okay. A lot in the relationship dynamics there that get kind of sacrificed when you start with MJ, I feel like. Yes, for sure. Also, like the weird thing with her dad is just like never resolved. The fact that her dad is at least emotionally, if not physically abusive and just a bad person. And like all of that is just like, yeah, pretty terrible. 
And what the hell is going on with Harry? Like they're dating, but they don't ever talk. And like, they never, she speak can't or let him know out. that she is working as a waitress because they'll think that's below. Like, it's so strange. Yeah. That part really blew my mind. She's like, don't tell Harry deranged. Speaking of deranged, uh, that brings us on to the villain report talking about Willem Dafoe, who we've talked about recently, much younger Willem Dafoe, 20 years ago, taking on Spider-Man's number one nemesis, the Green Goblin. How did you feel about the performance and the costume and the plan and all of his stuff here? I think Willem Dafoe's performance is unparalleled in superhero villain history i think he is giving one of the most nuanced and incredible performances of a villain ever of a guy who you really want to like and at first you're introduced to as this kind of like benefactor of both peter and peter's friend and he's a rich guy, but he's an okay rich guy. He seems nice, and he takes care of his son. Like, you even see him get out of... Like, they're having the argument in the Rolls Royce, but he gets out of the Rolls Royce and, like, brings the backpack to his son because he forgets it. He's just, like, introduced as a stand-up kind of guy. And the son doesn't like him, but you're like, of course the son doesn't like him. He's a rich father. Of course he's not going to like him. And I think that that's so interesting, especially after Peter losing his own father figure him kind of being introduced as a a second surrogate father figure for Peter is really cool. As far as his plan goes, it's a little less clear. They, at first, one of his scientists basically is like, this product isn't ready. And everybody else thought it was. And that scientist, like at the critical moment tells the government contractors, it's not ready. We can't use it. And so he's pissed about that. And he wants to prove to that scientist that it is ready So he uses it on himself and then it drives him mad and he kills that scientist. But he doesn't seem to remember that as Osborne. It seems that he is getting a split personality sort of thing going on where a green goblin persona is taking him over entirely. And then also sometimes he's William Os. Is it William? Uh, Norman. Norman. Norman Yeah. Sometimes he's Norman Osborne, who is a good man who is confused and being ousted from his company. And sometimes he's the green goblin who is very vindictive, but the green goblin knows what Norman's problems are and is solving them sort of, and sort of making them worse for Norman. But Norman is unaware of the green goblin and his activity. Is that, do I have that right? Yeah. I I think that's how it's portrayed. That part's a little confusing. Like how much they know about each other, what's going on. Norman's being ousted from the company, so he decides to just completely incinerate everyone who is ousting him from the company. I guess now Norman's still in charge of the company. I don't know what he wants Spider-Man to do. Like, he says you could join me, but what would he and Spider-Man be doing? And what is the Green Goblin's ultimate plan, other than destruction? He says we could change this city or destroy it. But why? And why would he want Spider-Man on his side? Does he still seek a surrogate son. I I don't know. It's very strange. It feels a little Darth Vader without having anything to back it up. You know? Yeah. I agree with you that the plan is a little convoluted. It sort of seems like he just wants revenge on the business people, which I think is actually like a good small scale thing. But then 
I'm a little bit confused of like how far it balloons up from there. Yeah. But I do really agree with you that the performance is excellent. I mean, it's the acting, it's his incredible voice, and it also is his physicality. And he insisted on like doing his own stunts and learning the fights. And he, and he was like the one standing on the glider. They said 95% of the time, cause he was just like a stunt man isn't going to give the physical performance I want to give. So like, please let me be the one who actually learns it and, and does it and for a guy in his late forties in this movie. I mean, that's, that's so cool. And it pays off because as we said, that fight, those movements, all of that stuff is so cool. And sort of the angle on the character. Uh, I think Moon Knight on Disney Plus is kind of diving into this right now, too. Like, if you have multiple personalities, like, and one of them is committing crimes and and the other would never do something like that, like, how culpable are you? And, and what does that really mean? And mm. I think all of that stuff is really interesting. For sure. We just mentioned Defoe. Maybe we'll be mentioning him again. Let's see. It's time for MVP, OTP, our most valuable player other than Peter. I'm taking old Toby off the board for this, but the rest of the cast is wide open, Emmett. Who is your MVP of Spider-Man? Okay. I just want to give quick shout outs to Rosemary Harris as Aunt May in this. Mm -hmm. She is excellent in like the three scenes that she's in she's so good in this but there's not a lot of writing for her in this movie yep i just want to say i've had dinner at her house that was cool um just 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 put that out there and then i think (laughs) the guy who's the professional wrestler much love for him that's uh, Macho Man Randy Savage. If he does have a husband, I think that's wonderful. If he doesn't, I also think that's wonderful. Unlike Spider-Man, who obviously has some <laughs> to say. <laughs> yes. Like, yeah. whatever. Okay, David Kep. You can, David, keep that one to yourself. It's gotta be, it's got to be James Franco as Harry. Mm-hmm. Like, he is constantly in this just screwing up Peter's life in much more subtle ways than his dad is. But he is there and he is doing it. And I'm not so sure he's doing it unknowingly. You know, like, I think, you know, he knows what's up. I I can't wait to see what happens with that character in future entries in the series, perhaps. Things are tense with them at the end. That final funeral scene, I mean... That I looks like, like it's out of the Godfather. That's incredible. That final funeral <laughs> yeah. scene. Yeah. Tensions are really high. And apparently I was reading that, you know, reportedly on set, the two actors were never, did never really got along either. Uh, and I think that is just like playing into all yeah. of the levels there <laughs> that are going on. I feel it. It feels tense. Who's your MVP? OT Pita. Oh, I mean, so many great performances in this movie, but I think that I have to give it to Kirsten Dunst, who really is great as Mary Jane. I feel like the movie comes alive anytime she's there, which is not that often. And I think that she is managing to sell the like pulpy 60s comic book romance they're kind of going Mm -hmm. for between the two of them which peter can't really do 
And I think that this movie like also kind of gets like the innate melancholy nature of Kirsten Dunst as a performer and like keys into that and uses her strength in a way that a lot of sort of teen heartthrob parts don't normally. This is a role that you could totally see Kirsten Dunst playing today as like an adult respectable uh Oscar nominated actor, you know, like it's a role that feels right for her in the way that it's played. And I think that's so cool. She is my MVP. As we've already talked about a lot of great people in this, I just want to shout out a couple of bit parts that are played by actors who are now famous. I mean, you've got Octavia Spencer as the wrestling check-in lady. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. For one second. <laughs> you've got Elizabeth Banks as Betty Brandt, who's a big comics character, but is like the receptionist at the Daily Bugle. Oh, yeah. There for like one scene. Um, even Joe Mangiello the uh who's like the boyfriend at the beginning this movie is sort of like packed with people who have bigger parts and other stuff later which is cool he is so good that her boyfriend's name is flash (laughs) i mean like you're right this does have a 1960s feel to it even though it is clearly a movie taking place in 2002 she has a boyfriend named flash who Mm -hmm. comes and honks to pick her up in his like sweet little 60s convertible spider-man is thinking about getting a car he lives in new york city and he's thinking about getting a car he is not (laughs) living in the world as we know it this boy is a creep he is (laughs) done toby mcguire and those awful peepers of his are canceled oh man um wait any (laughs) other final thoughts Uh, you're so right and i feel like that weird style is like kind of bubbling under the surface but i can't quite put my finger on it although it does clearly take place in 2002 because (laughs) they had to edit the twin towers out of it and there are sort of the explicit Mm. post 9 11 references of like the scene where all the new yorkers are like don't mess with new york new york strong and like throwing hot dogs at the green goblin or whatever that's what i was like this is a new york movie yes And it ends with him posing in front of the American flag as the On final the shot Empire of the State movie. Building. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you yeah. can really tell that it is like immediate post nine eleven. Okay, look, I skirted the question. I never gave it a flop or a bop, but I am going to give it a bop because I do think it is so well directed. It has so many great sequences. It is really fun to watch. You just see really the potential there. You really see the potential there for it to be like the perfect or superhero movie. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it totally holds up to that lens, but I do think as a fun, amazingly directed movie, I mean, I wish that any of the superhero movies we're getting now were directed with the sense of visual kinetic style that Sam Raimi brings to this PlayStation one CGI aside. (laughs) I think it just is like really, really fun to watch. And I'm excited to watch two and three and see how they sort of progress some of that stuff. I had one more final thought. When I originally watched this movie with my friend and hopefully eventual friend of the pod, Andrew Tillett, we were watching it and I think he was the one who showed it to me for the first time and he had seen it before and liked it. He and Caroline and I were all watching it together and, you know, he goes to the pro wrestling in like some hokey homemade Spider-Man costume and you're like, yeah, that seems about right. Like, this is such some kid. He wouldn't have the the money or the the power. And then 
five minutes later, swinging through New York City, baby, in a brand new, beautiful spandex Spidey suit. And I remember me and Caroline both being like, where did he get it? And Andrew being like, the costume store. <laughs> and us just dying. <laughs> and this is a joke that I've remembered for so long. So shout out to Andrew. Truly one of the funniest. Much love. Much love to Andrew. Now it is time for our favorite part of each and every episode. Bums the word, our quiz game. Today, Emmett, I am going to be quizzing you on the 10 highest grossing films of the year 2002. Oh my God. A year we have never covered on the podcast before. This is so exciting. So I will say we're doing top 10. You have absolutely heard of, if not seen, all of these movies. Uh Uh-huh. Spider-Man is number three. Okay. And other than that, the other four movies in the top five are all sequels, all number twos. So that's a little hint for you. 2002 okay. is a big year for sequels. Yeah, it makes sense. The second, the second in the second decade and the second millennium, the second year, the second millennium. We're starting off at the bottom of the list now. Number 10, this is a science fiction film directed by maybe the most famous living director based on a short story by uh, one of the most famous science fiction writers no longer with us. Minority Report. Probably one of the biggest flops of all time. (laughs) Despite loving both the director and the writer. That is correct. Emmett's recently poorly reviewed Minority Report. A movie that somehow manages to be both pro-cop and pro-murder and pro-crime. All three of those things at the same time. (laughs) And probably also pro-business police state, now that I come to think of it. It's wild. It's wild. It's like Steven Spielberg was pulling from the Christopher Nolan book on uh, social commentary or something. Film number nine. This is a romantic comedy. This is, if you will believe it, the highest grossing romantic comedy of all time. And also one of, if not the highest grossing independent movie of all time. There's something about Mary. Nope. Uh, So unlike most romantic comedies, this is not sort of trading on the popularity of its leading couple. This is about sort of like a specific culture and their customs around dating and marriage. Which culture might that be? (laughs) Well, I can't exactly tell you because then you would immediately know the movie. Okay. The country is in the title. It's about, you know, someone who came from from a European Mediterranean country, immigrated to America. My big fat Greek wedding. That is correct. Oh, my God. Incredible. A movie which I believe I saw in theaters. (laughs) I certainly never saw it any other place. And moments of it will haunt me until my dying day. Let me just say that. Oh, man. Okay, uh, film number eight. This is an animated adventure comedy. You know, definitely a film aimed at children and families. It's not a musical, but it's set in a historical time period. 
pretty it's a pretty good movie. The first film in a franchise that I believe still continues to this day. Set in a historical time period? Yes, but the main characters are animals, not people, for the most part, with one notable exception. Is <laughs> it Winnie the Pooh? Nope. It's sort of got an odd trio at its core, and they're all uniting to uh, to accomplish something. But you've got sort of a, a big no-nonsense guy, you've got the bad guy, and then you've got the bumbling, lovable, aloof idiot, and these three unlikely animals are partnering together to um, help protect a small child, a small human Oh! 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 It's Ice Age! Jeez. Yikes. Yes, it is Ice Age. Wow. Send me on my way. On my way. Send me on my way. On my way. Okay, film number seven. <laughs> film number seven is also a movie. This is written and directed by an auteur, a sort of hit or miss horror auteur. And this is him taking that big swing at a sci-fi horror action movie. Is it Hellboy, the original? No, but that is a good guess. This is a guy who has a really big breakout film. I mean, a huge surprise hit breakout film. And this is him sort of following it up uh, with a different sort of bigger twisty blockbuster. Oh, 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 oh. Is this Signs? It is. Well done. Well done. Definitely reminded of Signs as we look at Jordan Peele's Nope. Both in sort of similar vibe and... I feel like M. Night was kind of heralded in the same way at that point, but uh, obviously it kept going. Now, do you remember when I used to have that job hanging pictures in people's houses? One time I went over to this lady's house to hang like, I mean, it must have been like 30 different pieces of art. She was like around doing a bunch of different stuff. Her husband was just sitting there on the couch watching signs on like full volume that was the only time I've ever seen signs, but it took me like twice as long as it should have to hang all those paintings because I was so was like <laughs> the whole time just over my shoulder. Like, Oh my God, what's Joaquin Phoenix going to do now? <laughs> Film number six. This is, you know what? I'm not even, I'm not even going to tiptoe around it. This is the obligatory James Bond film on this list. Oh God. Okay. It is the fourth and final Pierce Brosnan film. Is it Moonraker? It's not Moonraker. You've got Halle Berry playing the Bond girl. You've got John Cleese playing Q. Is it Goldeneye? Nope. I don't... I'm not going to get it. It is Die Another Day. Uh, Okay, now we're in the top five sequel... Sequel territory. Sequel territory. Film number five is science fiction comedy a sequel to a big hit it's sort of like a buddy cop odd couple sort of movie in a sci-fi world uh i think the first movie in this series you famously really really struggled to guess on a different thumbs the word um despite definitely knowing this movie is it the last star trooper 2 <laughs> no you've got like old action hero whose vibe is like really over it and then you've got 
young hot movie star cool guy oh oh men in black too yes men in black too that's it all right good the fourth highest grossing film of 2002 this is a science fiction movie that is both a sequel and a prequel is it attack of the clones it is star wars episode two attack of the clones a movie that i i'm not sure i've ever even watched to be honest like Tell all the way number through four here behind spider-man incredible incredible okay now we're down to the two highest grossing films of the year i know they're okay. both from series near okay. and dear to your heart okay one of them is harry potter and the chamber of secrets that's number two number two okay what's give me a tiniest description of the second one uh the number well this is the number one highest grossing movie of the year uh it is a sequel it's the second movie in a trilogy and it is adapted from a classic novel it's a fantasy movie oh it's lord of the rings the two towers the best movie ever put to that is correct tell me that the battle of the palinor is better than the battle of helm's deep and you can uh, you know what you can do all right so (laughs) look for me on the third day when the sun rises i I cannot stress enough. This is mostly just because I originally only had the first and second movies on DVD and nobody wants to watch the first movie over and over and over again. So I would just only watch the second movie over and over and over again. Finally, after watching the first and second movies over and over and over again, I finally watched the third movie like four years later and like, oh, thank God they finally destroyed that ring. What a relief. Well, there you are. The films of 2002. And uh, well done, Emma. I think that's all but one. Very, very strong turnout here. Thank you for tuning in again to Cinema Bums and our Webhead Summer. In 11 weeks, a mere 11 weeks, we're going to be covering Jordan Peele's Nope as the year of Nope continues. But next week, we're doing Spider-Man 2 from 2004, the big one, the one everyone loves to talk about. We're going to be seeing how it holds up today. We're going to talk about old dr octavius i'm excited mm-hmm. uh until then any parting words for the listeners on that oh yes uh check out mended wing theater on instagram facebook gofundme etc um that's amended wing theater we are going to be taking shakespeare's comedy of errors all across north carolina throughout may depending on when this is airing we may already be on the road that does not mean we cannot use your contributive dollars Always looking for that little bit of gas money that's going to get us over the finish line. Thank you very much. This is what I do uh, mm-hmm. with all of the money that I make from podcasting. So it's a pet venture of mine, and it's really wonderful to get to bring Shakespeare to the kids. <laughs> so, <laughs> all of that being said, thank you so much. Wouldst thou stay frosted on this eve? Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcasts. It is created and produced by Emma Temple and me, Wade Lawrence Holloman. I also edit and mix the podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. 
You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week 